Well, good morning. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Some of the truest, some of the things that get the most in our way in understanding God's will for our lives, uh, understanding what God's doing in a particular moment, are true things we say that are just not helpful for us to understand the truth. I know that sounds very confusing, but let me give you an example. Imagine, just hypothetically, you had a teenage daughter who wasn't a very good driver. And imagine, just hypothetically, she kept running into things. Nothing big deal, you know, no, no, no major accidents, but just kept bumping into curbs and uh, columns at the gas station, all those things that are put there so that, you know, you wonder, why did they put a post there? They put a post there for this hypothetical daughter. And uh, uh, imagine, hypothetically, that, that this daughter's rejoinder, like, what happened? You kind of like, can you explain what just happened? The, the repeated answer is, accidents happen. Right? That's the, that's the response. Accidents happen. Cute, cute smile, little dainty shoulders go up. Accidents happen. Now, what she's saying is absolutely true. Accidents do happen. She's saying a true thing. But the true thing is actually getting in the way of dealing with what actually is happening, which is you're just a bad driver. <laughs> We've been talking about the manifest presence of God. And when we talk about the manifest presence of God, one of the things that I think can get in the way of pursuing that, pursuing this felt presence of God, is this statement, God is always present. Right? God is always here. God is omnipresent. Those are true statements, gloriously true statements. They can also be used to confuse the issue because what we're saying is not so much that we don't believe that God is always present, but we're saying that we need help as human beings, as fallen human beings, to experience that presence in a way that allows our, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls, our emotions to worship him and know him better. You know, another one of those things that we say is, uh, we talk about, why do you go to church? And, and people say, well, I go to church to get built up. I go to church to get built up. I've heard that my whole life growing up in the church. And they're getting that from the text that we're going to look at today. If you want to look with me, if you've turned there, hopefully by now, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, this morning, I am sure that some of you are here in spite of a hard week. Some of you are here because you know you should be here, but it's been difficult to get here, and it may have even been difficult to be here so far this morning. And I want to thank you for being here. Some of you are here and you don't know why you're here. You're just here because this is what you do on Sunday mornings. The truth is, is we need to be constantly reminded about what this gathering is. And this gathering has everything to do with what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. In fact, all of the messages in the past several weeks have been leading up to a conversation about the, God's purpose for this gathering. So people say, you ask them, why, why do you come to church? They say, well, I want to be built up. And sure enough, in this passage, it says that we are called to be built up together. 
but built into what? What is the building supposed to accomplish? Look at the end there, verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into, what are we supposed to be being built into? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this is very important just that we understand the timeline of what we're talking about here is, is that the dwelling place for God by the Spirit means that what Paul's talking about here is this, this world, this life. We are supposed to be filled and dwelt in by the Spirit in this world. So how does that happen? That's really where we need to, ha- where we need to go. That's the conversation we need to have. At some point, I've got to stop selling the car and just hand you the keys. Hopefully you want the presence of God. Hopefully you know you need the presence of God. Hopefully you're afraid of going too long without experiencing the manifest presence of God. Hopefully I've sold the car. Horrible base metaphor for this. But now I need to hand you the keys. And you say, okay, this is what we do. This is how we move forward. So how are we built together into a dwelling place of God in this life by the Spirit? How does that happen? Well... The first thing I hope we've communicated over the last several weeks is that this happens through the gospel. God's dwelling with us is the goal of the gospel. It's the way that God accomplishes the gospel. So when Jesus comes to earth, what is he called? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. And what is Emmanuel's purpose in coming and dwelling with us? To save us from our sins which separate us from God and allow us to experience his presence both in this life and in the next forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to remove the separation that occurred after man's first sin and bring us back into the presence of God. And if you have any doubt about God's priority over uh, his presence with us, all you have to do is look at Jesus and say, Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, and dwelt among us so that he could redeem us from our separation and bring us into an eternal relationship with God. The priority of the gospel, the way the gospel is accomplished, is all has to do with the presence of God. So that's one way that God is building us up. And every time we recite the gospel, every time we sing about the gospel, every time we share the gospel, we are reminded of God's purposed presence purposes. Uh, That sounded better in my head. But God also uses means of grace. God uses things. He He uses means of grace to bring his presence into our midst. And if we don't understand that, we will dwell in a sort of, uh, sort of ongoing frustration where we know God's purposes, but we're not actually sure what to do with them. We're not actually sure how to move forward in them. There is one means of grace that God used in history and has used throughout history that is so essential to God's presence dwelling purposes that many people have confused this means of grace as grace. Let me explain that. There's one thing God uses so consistently that people throughout history, even today, have been tempted to view, to view the thing that he uses as the grace itself. And you know what that thing is? The church. The church. God's delivery of his presence has consistently come through his church. Look back at that text with me. Verse 19. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That word together is crucial. Your experience of God's presence is meant to happen in connection with brothers and sisters in Christ. Your experience of God's manifest presence is meant to happen in community. Do any of you remember friendship bracelets? So, uh, so all the girls in sixth grade liked friendship bracelets. And I learned, before the internet, before YouTube, I taught myself how to braid friendship bracelets, thinking that I was so smooth because I was going to give all these girls friendship bracelets. So, so just so we're clear, I thought the way to impress girls was to learn how to make jewelry. So, so I would make these girls these friendship bracelets, and then you know you'd weave one thing into another thing into another thing, and and it just kind of becomes hypnotic after a while. You're just kind of braiding back and forth and back and forth. You know, this text that we're looking at today is this sort of interwoven connection between three things. It's the connection between us, Jesus, and the church. So I want to read it again to you. I'm going to start at verse 11 this time. And as I read it, I want you to listen for those three elements being braided together. You, Jesus, and the church. Therefore, remember, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace... And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now, I know that's a massive chunk of text and I want to help you see these these three elements interwoven throughout. So let me just break it down into pieces. Look at the word Gentiles in verse 11. Gentiles means outsiders. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church and saying, at one time you were the outsiders. You didn't fit in with the established 
people of God. So there he's talking about that horizontal relationship these people didn't have at the time with the church, with the people of God. But then he pivots in verse 12, and he says, and that you were also at that time separated from Christ. So now he's talking about being separated from two things, separated from the church and separated from Christ. And then he goes back to the people of God. He says that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Now he's going back to the horizontal. He's going back to community. He's going back to relationship. But then he pivots back again vertically and talks about God having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near is the convergence of two things. Brought near to the people of God, brought near to God. He's talking about two things. You were separated from two things, you're brought near to two things. Listen to the way that belonging to the people of God and belonging to God are intertwined. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, a, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Let me hit pause for a minute and say, I'm going to do about 10 minutes of fairly technical Bible study type stuff. And then we will jump into application. Some of you love the technical stuff. You're going to enjoy this. Some of you not so much. Hang with me. We're not going to be here for the next 40 minutes. I'm not going to be here for the next 40 minutes. Don't worry. So what Paul is doing is he is showing this interconnection between our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the church. Earlier I said that God so consistently uses the people of God to bring his blessings that people have been tempted throughout church history to think that the church is God's grace or that the church is indispensable to God's grace. That's not what we're saying. We are saying that almost every time God blesses his people, he does it through the church. And that the place we would start in seeking the presence of God is in this corporate gathering. We're saying that God's most consistent means of delivering his presence to his people is within the people of God. And I'll, I'll prove that a little bit more later. There are moments in this text where we can't even tell, just through a quick English reading of this, we can't even tell whether Paul is talking about our relationship with the church or our relationship with Jesus. There, there are moments in this text where we couldn't even be sure which one he's referring to. So in verse 13, he says, far off. We were far off. Well, from who? Is he saying we are far off from Jesus or is he saying we are far off from the people of God? Verse 13, it says we were brought near. Which one is he talking about? Are we, are we brought near to God or are we brought near to the people of God? He himself is our peace in verse 14. Our peace with God or our peace with each other? Did he kill the hostility that we had with each other or did he kill the hostility that we had with him? Now, what have I just done? I've, I've, I've thrown up a rhetorical series of arguments that's supposed to end with all of the above, right? Yes. The answer to all those questions is yes. Did God, is, is Paul talking about our distance from the people of God or from God? Yes, both. Is he talking about bringing us near to the people of God or to God? Yes, both. Is he talking about being our peace with God or our peace with each other? 
Yes, both. Is he talking about eliminating the hostility we have with each other or our hostility we have with God? Yes, both. God's work through the gospel is to connect us into a people and allow us to experience his presence, his closeness together as we walk together in him. What I want you to see at this point is that the gathered church, and that's what this is, the gathered church is ground zero for God's presence. If you were looking for God's manifest presence, which I hope you are, you would go to the church. Now, that is a fairly radical statement. Because over the last 40 years, very quietly, probably through your parents or in your childhood, you were taught to be suspicious of institutions. You were taught to be suspicious of large groups of people who kind of all like come together and do something together in agreement. You were taught to be suspicious of authority. So this whole idea that you're going to experience God's presence through an institution, through a group of people, that sounds a bit sketch to a deep part of you that was raised to be suspicious of institutions. But throughout all of Scripture, we see that God consistently reveals himself to his gathered people. We saw that last week when we looked at the end of the story and we said, what's the real normal we're shooting for? And we saw in two chapters, chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, this consistent uh, emphasis on God's presence dwelling among his people. If we go all the way back to the Old Testament, we'll see that God is gathering his people together to dwell in their midst, that even as they're being led out of Egypt and into the promised land through the wilderness, God is revealing himself in a manifest way through fire and smoke and all sorts of other things. We see that when the temple is dedicated, God manifests himself in the midst of God's people. God's manifesting purposes happen in the church. Paul is so convinced of this that as he transitions from this theological into the practical, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul's concluding statement as he throws all this theology at us is it was God's purpose to connect us together as a people so that he could manifest, reveal, expose his manifold wisdom to the world through the church. Where are we going to experience this? Where are we going to experience the manifest presence of God? The first place we should look is in the church in a corporate gathering of saints assembled, where Jesus promises, by the way, 
wherever two or more are gathered. There I am in their midst. So how do we respond to this? How do we react to this? Well, the first way we react to this is just to praise God. I think it's a little scary to think that you look around and you say, so you're saying I'm stuck with these people. So you're saying we got to do this together. And I'm saying, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to have a people to walk with to experience this. And I want to tell you that there'll be something in your flesh that will tell you that that's the problem. Right? That if I didn't have all these knuckleheads to deal with, I would have a great relationship with God. As a guy in seminary, Bible college told me one time, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. So there's something in our flesh who thinks, man, that's the problem. Y'all are the problem. If y'all would get straight, I would be experiencing God much more clearly. But that's not how Paul sees it. He responds to this truth with truth with praise. In verse 14, he says, in chapter 3, he says, For this reason, praise and prayer, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. We need strength to know God in a way that surpasses knowledge. To be filled with all the fullness of God. And God's going to do that in the church. So how do we respond to this truth? We praise and we pray. We praise God. We say, thank you. You've given me clear map on how to find this treasure I'm seeking And we pray and say, God, if you don't help us, if you don't strengthen us with your power in our inner being, we will not get it. We will not experience it. We will not want to experience it. We will not know all that you have for us. We will not see the height and the depth and the length and the width of your goodness. It's it's beautiful that God is so clear. And I want to tell you, you shouldn't have, if you have doubt, I just haven't communicated it well. If you spent the time studying this, you would see God has given us a treasure map to his indwelling presence. And it is in the assembled people of God. Hopefully you don't doubt that. It's beautiful to see that, but it's also a little frightening. Because we know ourselves, and to some extent we know our brothers and sisters. And we know that we need a lot of help. Just because we have the map, we need a lot of help to follow that map and to find that treasure. I want to close this out, maybe 10 minutes or so, maybe a little longer than that, talking about the practical first step in seeking the manifest presence of God together. Paul shifts from the first three chapters of theology into practicality in chapter 4, verse 1. 
And in verse 1, Paul says this of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, the number one first step in experiencing and seeking and experiencing the manifest presence of God together as a church is unity. Unity is the essential in this pursuit. We must walk together. Now, how do we get that unity? Well, Paul gives us the recipe for that unity in this text. The very first thing that he says is, I therefore prisoner for the Lord. One ingredient to experiencing the manifest presence of God is a willingness to suffer for God's glory. Like that's, that's a willingness to suffer for the glory of God is a necessary ingredient to experiencing God. You have to get to the point where you say, I want this more than anything. And I want to be clear here. Why was Paul suffering? Was Paul suffering because he had an extraordinarily robust devotional life? No. Was Paul suffering because he was a prayer warrior? No. Paul was suffering because he refused to allow a personal thing to stay only personal. He knew that God's purpose of revealing his glory to the world was bound up in a group of people knowing Jesus and walking together toward him. So the first point, how do we, how do we have this unity? We have to be willing to suffer. We each have to be willing to pay whatever price the Lord calls us to pay to experience this, not only to experience this, but to help one another experience this. You know, so many of the acts of service that we do for one another are rooted in sort of the other's weakness. If I just got up and I just shared the theological truths I learned in studying the scriptures this week, I would probably have to do about a third the amount of sermon prep I do. About two-thirds of the amount of sermon prep I do is in figuring out ways to say this that will serve people, individual people, people from other backgrounds, people, people that are new to church, people that have been in church for a long time. Most of the work is devoted to figuring out ways of saying things that will serve others. And if I don't do that work, it's because I'm not willing to suffer. I don't really call that suffering, but I'm not willing to pay the price to encourage you to experience what I've experienced, to help you experience what I've experienced. You know, the worship team, they could just get together and just play. And if it was just for themselves, it'd be in a different key. There'd be a lot long extended jams. You'd, have, you'd just have a bunch of other things going on. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But what, what's really happening there isn't simply we have these songs we'd like to sing and we want to sing them. But what's really happening is how do we help other people 
walk with us into the presence of God, knowing that a lot of them can't sing some of the keys that we can sing. And extended jams aren't really helpful to them. And how do we pick songs that will bring them, uh, stir their affections, and so on and so forth. So the entire corporate gathering has to be built around this sense that every piece is willing to lay down their rights, lay down their, their, their comfort for the sake of the other. We did talk about this more in a little bit, and I'm really going to talk about it next week. But it's important to note that Paul is saying, the very beginning is he gives us the details on how to pursue this treasure together. Some of y'all are going to have to suffer. And then he says this, I call you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. So just so we're all clear, what is the calling we've received? To be built up together into the dwelling place of God. That's the calling. The calling we've received is to dwell in God's presence. Now and later, forever and ever. Amen. And there's a way that we can walk in our life that is worthy of that calling or that is unworthy of that calling. And what we mean by worthy isn't just the right response. What we mean is, Are you walking toward this or walking away from this? There's a way we can walk that's walking toward this calling or there's a way we can walk that's walking away from this calling. And the number, he he lists a bunch of things, humility, gentleness, patience, all pursuing unity. But it all starts with this dirty word, this hardcore word, humility. If you were to ask me what's the number one thing we have to share as we seek God's presence together, it would be this word, humility. Calvin writes, he now descends into particulars. And first of all, he mentions humility. The reason is that he was about to enter into the subject of unity, to which humility is the first step. This, again, produces meekness, which disposes us to bear with our brethren, and thus to preserve that unity, which would otherwise be broken a hundred times a day. Without humility, we will break our unity a hundred times a day. Let us remember, therefore, that in cultivating brotherly kindness, we must begin with humility. Whence come rudeness, pride, and disdainful language toward our brethren? Whence come quarrels, insults, and reproaches? Come they not from this, that everyone carries his love of himself and his regard to his own interests to excess. By laying aside haughtiness and a desire of pleasing ourselves, we shall become meek and gentle and acquire that moderation of temper which will overlook and forgive many things in the conduct of our brethren. The idea is this. If God's going to deliver his presence to us as a people, then any kind of encumbrance that keeps us from gathering together in unity is going to keep us from experiencing God's presence. And almost all of those encumbrances, almost all of those problems are rooted in pride. John Newton says it this way, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry, nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. And under all trials and afflictions, 
he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. If we're going to seek the Lord together, there must be a selflessness, a readiness to suffer, a genuine humility. The first point is just this. Humility makes our unity possible. But the second point is this. Humility makes the practice of his presence viable. So next week, I'm going to show you two main things. That there is a collection of practices that God has prescribed for his people that are all associated with his promise to dwell in our midst. He's given us a list of things to do together. And he's promised that these things are connected to his presence. So I'm going to show you that. And then I'm going to also show you that the way you sabotage it is a self-centered version of those things. It's a self-centered practice, a a self-centered spirit in the practice of those things. There's a way to ruin the whole thing. And that is everyone gathering like a herd of cats, doing their own thing, coming for their own reasons, leaving with their own agendas. There's a way to ruin this, this perfect storm of God's presence that he's designed called the corporate gathering. And that is for me, for the worship team, for the sound team, for the greeters, for the children's workers, for you to come in a spirit of self first. We have all of these amazing tools God's given us. And if we will unite those tools and practice those tools in humility, God will inhabit them in a way that will surprise you. And I'll show you that next week, how each one of these things can be short-circuited by a prideful, self-centered approach. Number three, humility makes us hopeful. So the Greek word for humility combines the word for stomach and the word for lowly. Stomach and lowly. It's actually midriff, which is not a word I use very often. Uh, and lowly. And what's, what's, what's going on there? What's the compound word trying to convey? Well, in the ancient world, the, the, the gut is the center of emotion, right? It's the place you have all the feels. It's where you get the feelings. In fact, we're actually seeing now, science is actually saying that the gut is called the second brain. It's this sort of emotional center. It's a part of, it's a part of our, our, our thought process, a part of our emotions. So this word for humility is essentially saying, you feel low. You feel low. Why is that important? Because, darn it, it is really easy to be deceived into thinking you're humble. Because you have the, a humble theology. Because intellectually you're able to articulate that you're just like everybody else. Because mentally you're able to say, this is all God and none me. It is so easy to be there mentally, but that's not humility. Humility is, I feel low. I feel low. In my gut, I feel low. When we are all together with that feeling, God will do some amazing things. God will do some amazing things as he stirs up, not just an intellectual agreement that we are nothing, but a gut sense that apart from him, we have nothing. And I am saying to you this morning that one of the reasons why humility is so absolutely essential in the pursuit together of the presence of God is that humility 
makes us hopeful in a way that nothing else can. If we say I am helpless and we say apart from Christ, I am nothing. But we treat others with a sense of resignation as if they could never change. Or a sense of superiority. Or a sense of assuming the worst in others. We don't feel loved. Honestly, friends, gut level humility says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing and God saved me and is actually working in me and I have somewhat of a a, a useful life. And if God can do that to me, then he can do that to anybody else. I'm I'm so wrapped up in the theology of change. Uh, My whole life is built on it. My whole living is built on it. This idea that God takes people who don't want to be his and makes them joyful children in him. That's how I make my living. That is hard to hear. It's hard to hear the quiet cynicism of, well, that will never change, or this is what it is, or this can't be any different. It's hard to hear because it's not humble speech. Humble speech says, I couldn't like breathe right now if God didn't give me breath. I wouldn't be where I am if God hadn't reached in and changed me. And if God is willing to do that for me, then he surely would be willing to do that for others. There's a hopefulness that comes out of biblical humility that says point blank, listen, if God came to me while I was dead and raised me up to walk in newness of life, if he overcame the huge gulf of my sin that separated me from Jesus and made it so that I could not only be with him, but be his child and call him father and have boldness and confidence in accessing him, if God has gone through all of those links to bring me into his presence And my goodness, I think he would probably be willing to bring us revival. I think he would probably be willing to change that person we think is unchangeable. The expectations we have that are rooted in humility for ourselves and for others radically increase because we look at a God who is working in our life. Here's here's a biblical proof of that. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who who were to believe in him for eternal life. How does Paul connect his his genuine humility, I am the foremost of sinners, with hopefulness for the world? He says that God saved me to show those who would be saved that he is merciful and patient and that he changes lives. I want to be careful not to step to walk in here as the new guy and roundly criticize everything about. I, 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 I'm not criticizing everything. Some amazingly commendable things about this area, about this culture, and about this community. But a group of people who have systematically fled the dangerous parts of a city to live in the safe parts of the city need to come to terms with their view of change. Because what was quietly communicated when that decision was made was, 
this is going to hell. And I need to get on a boat that's not sinking. When throughout church history, God's people shined as the people who stayed when the plagues broke out and the persecution broke out. I'm not asking you to do anything specific with that. What I'm asking you to do, and and nor am I saying that, that, that I'm better than you. What I'm saying is you probably have a blind spot in your theology of change that is rooted in your very address. You need a hopefulness for the world and a hopefulness for this church and a hopefulness for one another that says, if God changed me, then he can change all of this too. And I believe that if you are humble, if you aren't crediting where you are in life to your education, to your upbringing, to your income, but are crediting it to God, you will be hopeful for people who look very far off. There's a fourth point I want to make. I didn't put it in the notes. I, I thought of it as I was in worship. Let me, let me tell you the fourth thing that I think is essential to this humility that, that changes our pursuit of God's presence. Humility makes us honest. Humility makes us honest. It is God's will in our church as we seek the presence of God together to confess sin. What would keep us from confessing sin? What would keep us from confessing uh, sexual sin? What, what would keep us from, from confessing bad thoughts towards someone else? Pride. We don't want people to think that we're the sinners that we actually are. And that kind of ongoing, unconfessed sin is an obstacle to our pursuit together of the presence of God. Genuine humility makes us honest. And we say, I am nothing. And it's about time y'all knew that. False humility, intellectual humility says, I'm nothing. And I'm going to continue to struggle secretly with a bunch of things because I don't want anyone to actually know I'm nothing. God's purposes for this gathering, what is God doing in this church? What has God been doing in this church for the last six months? God is preparing a people to be filled with his presence. I believe that with all of my heart. And I'm being pointed and direct with you because I think you really do want God's presence in this place. And what we need to do together is to understand that that's going to happen together. That's going to happen as something that we experience together. And that the thing that gets in the way of that is this thing that all of us have a problem with. Pride. Thinking we are more than we are. And so what I'm going to do is I pray, so I'm going to ask God to just give us the gift of humility. Give us the gift of humility in this time and in the weeks coming. Someone asked me, well, Chris, when have you experienced the manifest presence of God in a corporate setting? And I said, 
About 10 years ago, I was at a, a youth group event. I had taken a bunch of teenagers down to uh, the Gulf Shore to do some work. I don't remember what it was. And uh, we were in a prayer gathering, and I was praying. And suddenly, the, the atmosphere of the room just changed. And almost like a movie, all of these very good, righteous things that I had done in my life started showing in front of me, my eyes. It was like when I, when I left everything and went to Africa to help start an orphanage, when I, when I, was, when I cared for my family, when I, when I told this person about Jesus, when I, you know, when I preached faithfully for 10 years and all this. And then at the end of it was this sentence, filthy rags. There was a sense as I saw all of that, I could see that really I could never know if I'd done any of that with the right motive. Maybe I did all of that because I wanted to feel good about myself. Maybe I did all that because I wanted to impress someone. I'll never know. Not in this world. And so what I saw was this huge catalog of the best things I'd done, not the worst things, the best things I'd done, in a sense that none of it allowed me to boast even a little bit in myself. As I was experiencing this, it was almost a nauseous feeling, as this heavy weight in the room I, I hear this whisper of a, a voice of a girl that I had taken to this event with a bunch of other kids, and she just weeps. I need to be saved. And this was the kid that I had no hope for, that I was cynical toward, that I was like, why are you even here? And she was weeping to someone, for someone to tell her how to be saved. And honestly, in that moment, I was too out of it to, to even respond. And someone else, another teenager, came to her and told, shared the gospel with her and told her how she could be right with Jesus. You know, the, the weight of that room cleared. And I've never been the same since then. That was a profound moment in my life. But you know what's interesting is having walked with teenagers and young adults for years and years, unfortunately, you see a lot of them fall away. But that girl, who I never thought would <laughs> really even want anything to do with God, 10 years later is a mom and had some hard things happen to her in her life. And she's still walking with Jesus. Friends, let's be humble and let's be hopeful that the presence of God can do amazing things in our midst. Let's pray. Father God, you are faithful to us when we are, and we always are, undeserving. And you are able to do exceedingly far and above what we can ask or imagine. We are small, you are big. In a million ways, we have boasted in our own abilities when they are not our abilities. In a billion ways, we have trusted in our own plans for our lives. Our ability to create a controllable environment. And now we come to you and say, we want you to work. We don't, we're tired of building our own little kingdoms. We're tired of, of trying to build this, this secondary, second-rate world. We want you to intervene in our lives 
Reveal yourself to us and do the work that we can't do. Lord, I pray that you would give us, even as we sing, a spirit of humility, a a hunger for you, a spirit of unity, that we would be pulled together to walk together in truth. If someone here needs courage right now, Lord, give them courage, please. They won't have it without you. If someone here needs forgiveness, give them forgiveness. Let them forgive who they need to forgive. They won't be able to do that if you don't help them. If someone needs to be reconciled with someone else, Lord, give them the faith to make that happen. They won't do it unless you help them. Lord, we need you in every way. And you have been faithful in our need. And you will be faithful in our need. In Jesus' name we pray.